Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Preston Pish, co-creator of the Investors Podcast Network, one of the top global podcast media brands for financial education. While his podcast network covers the goings-on in finance, investing, and economics broadly, Preston has more recently focused exclusively on Bitcoin, hosting a weekly discussion with the top entrepreneurs, authors, and investors in this rapidly growing ecosystem. Preston is highly respected amongst his peers for his thoughtful, articulate, and insightful takes on the complex dynamics of the global economy and investing landscape and the impact that the emergence of Bitcoin is having on them. Preston and I have spoken on a number of occasions, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with him to hear how he is currently thinking about things and what he is most focused on. Enjoy. Preston, it's good to uh, to see you and connect again, man. It's been a it's been a stretch. How you doing? It's, it's been too long. It's I'm doing great, and it's great to see you. Is it? I can't remember if we did one in between, but was the last time we actually spoke on a podcast and not at the Bitcoin conference? Was that the week of the March 2020 sell-off, or did we do another one after that? Ooh. I think we. I have a, I have I don't a, know. I have a sense we may have spoken in between, but. We seem to be speaking at these seminal moments in Bitcoin history, you know, the big sell off back then. And then, of course, this week, a day or two ago, we have an all time high. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. It's a big week. Um, you know, the, anybody who's a technician that was looking at that pattern of the head and shoulders, um, I think it probably looked the ugliest there in July. Anybody. I know you're thinking about somebody in particular. <laughs> <laughs> a couple people in particular. But I mean, you had you had a lot of people that were, I mean, just dancing on the grave of it and saying, Oh, you you all are about to get throttled. Mm-hmm. And uh there was a few of us that came out and said, you know what? You might think that this is a head and shoulders pattern, but I don't think it's anything of the sort. And I think you're about to see. Uh, when that sentiment just gets like devastating and you can see it on Twitter when everybody's just a bear, that's whenever I get most excited, um, in Bitcoin. And I think it takes years to kind of start getting used to that. Like when Mm. everybody's telling you the thing's going to die, like that's when you need to be loading your bags because, um, you're probably reaching seller, uh, suffocation in the market. And, um, yeah, so uh, sure enough, it came, came, climbed right back out of its grave. In fact, I think it kind of stood up and kind of brushed itself off and then started dancing and doing its, its routine. <laughs> and um, it's been pretty entertaining ever since. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's almost like you develop a sense because there, there's the broad stroke, like, you know, the Bitcoin cyber hornets, laser eyed people just laughing at anybody who's, you know, trying to put a traditional TA framework on top yes. of Bitcoin, right? Because it is such a, it, it's, it's totally unique. It's a paradigm shift. You can't apply old rules to this thing. And no. so the, like, even, you know, people that came into the space recently know that, and they enjoy all these bearish takes, but, you know, as you say, haven't been around for a while and seeing a bunch of this, you almost get a sense. Like I remember the day in July when, you know, it just had gone through that kind of cascading sell-off and dip below 30 into 20 into 29 territory. I can't remember the exact low. And it just felt like this is, this is it. This like, is ugly. <laughs> well, I, my sense was we touched the bottom and it's going to be wild from here. Yeah. You know, it's going to, it's going to slingshot right back up. And, you know, yeah, I, I don't, 
I thought the same thing. I thought that we were going to get a pretty quick bounce back up. And I mean, it just, it just dragged for months and I was not expecting that, but, um, you know, when, whenever I understood that the China ban for the mining was real, um, just as a business owner, I just immediately was like, oh my God, this, the expense that they're dealing with that was mm. unexpected for them was so massive. And then you, you had all the speculators on top of that. There was a, there was a few factors there that really kind of turned all, simultaneously. Um, and, you know, it just, it just took some time to work all that out. And sure enough, it did. And it was amazing to watch the hash power just keep making those adjustments every two weeks. I mean, it was probably more like two and a half to three weeks because of uh, all the hash power that came offline. But I mean, the protocol handled it like it was nothing. And mm-hmm. um, in the meanwhile, you had El Salvador, who was basically creating this massive incentive structure for lightning. Um, you're, you're watching all those things take place in the background. And from a fundamental standpoint, I was like, a lot of people underestimating what's, what's going on right now and what this yeah. really means. Yeah. It, I mean, it, you just always get this sense that you're in this like secret club with Bitcoin. Like the whole world is seeing this play out in a completely different way than you're seeing it play out, you know? And, yeah. that, and that's why, it, you know, the Twitter antics are so hilarious and absurd because it just instills that giddiness about like, wow, you know, there, there's such an asymmetry of interpreting and understanding what's going on here. Yeah. A little bit of uh, Cassandra's curse in that, um, and not that we know what's going to happen, but you have like this, you have this insight that you're really confident that you know what's about to happen, mm. but nobody believes you, right? Unless other, unless you're surrounded with other Bitcoiners, but like right. you, you can see it on, on Twitter. Um, you can, I can definitely see it in my feed with all the traditional finance people. And you can tell that they just cannot wrap their head around what the heck's happening. Yeah. And they think that it's very psychological. That's the thing that I think is one of the biggest misnomers with this is people look at it and they think it's like completely psychological and just greed driving this market. And I have the exact opposite opinion. I think it's just like total math. <laughs> I, think, I think this is just like one of the most elegant mathematical things that have ever been created throughout time. Mm. Yeah. And it occurs to me right now that we may be speaking to a bit of a different audience with this podcast. And I didn't, you know, we, we didn't talk about where you come in and what your contribution to this space is, but suffice it to say that you've taken that insight and you've, you know, built a tremendous, uh, brand and, uh, been pumping out a lot of amazing content to help people, from, you know, both the traditional world and people coming into this, you know, kind of, you know, investing noobs or or looking at the macro uh, to help them contextualize this. Because, you know, with with every paradigm shift, past frameworks don't work so well, or that at at the very least they need adjustment. And I think we're dealing with possibly one of the largest paradigm shifts anyone alive has 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 ever experienced. And so, you know, what was it? I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but what was it that first brought you into looking at Bitcoin and being interested in it? It was just the the sheer insanity of the solution to to the 2008 crisis and just 
knowing that that was not a long-term fix and that mm. the markets were becoming completely manipulated, uh, particularly in the fixed income and, and um, indirectly the, the equity market. And as a person who pride myself in calculating the value of what a business is worth um, based on free cash flows through this Warren Buffett-style value investing approach, um, I kind of felt like uh, I I kind of felt like you were being robbed in in plain sight, and the game wasn't fair. Mm. And um, when I when I discovered Ray Dalio, and I really kind of started studying his approach and understanding kind of how he thought about the macro landscape, it really started to click for me like what was being played. Uh, by these central bankers, and how like they're they're forced to act the way they're they're acting, mostly because of the fiscal um, decisions that are being made and that whole incentive structure, and like how that kind of played together. And um, you know, just from a valuation standpoint, when you do value investing, I mean, it all comes down to interest rates, and then how, what type of premium you're going to pay above those interest rates uh, to own equity that has more risk. And so when I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, well, if we keep compressing interest rates further and further down, that means we are mathematically forcing asset prices of everything, anything that's equity-based, to include debt higher and higher and higher. And so when I saw that the solution to the 2008 was, well, we're just going to do QE, we're going to continue to press the rates, the, the interest rates lower and lower, I'm thinking, okay, so how does this madness eventually resolve itself? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, it, I would say in, in 2015, for me, um, gold started to look like, uh, okay, well, I got to have something that is going to hedge against this inflationary thing. Because this is, this is going to blow up in their faces because I'm of the opinion, anytime you mess with nature through some type of manipulated input, nature is going to find a way to, to remedy that. Mm. Um, and it's just a matter of when and how, like how long it takes to express that remedy to to the to the uh, manipulated input. And so, um, you know, around 2015, I'm there studying Dahlia really hardcore, and this Bitcoin thing started to come up. Um, and when, as soon as I started digging into it, and I saw that it offered a peg, um, because that was the question I toyed with coming out of the 2008 crisis was. I would ask myself this. So I can't even tell you. Like I would just sit there and think about this. And what I was thinking about was how does how how are you ever going to be able to remedy this situation of this competitive um, printing between nation states if they're all doing it simultaneously? Right. Mm-hmm. right. How how will that possibly? How will somebody step up and say, you know what, we're going to be the responsible ones? Or how from like a G7 are you going to possibly come together and them all just decide that they're going to become fiscally responsible and peg their money again? Like, I just couldn't understand how that would possibly take place just from an incentive standpoint. And I, I mean, I just toyed with this question for years. And then when I saw Bitcoin and I saw that this was something that had a fixed amount, like, like gold, but... Um, it solved the the spendability piece to it, as we all know. If you're going to have gold as your peg, right, 
you have a trusted layer for the currency that rides on top of that. With this, you removed that and immediately it just made sense to me. And so mm-hmm. we did a podcast back in 2015. I want to say like the first quarter or second quarter of 2015. And we covered Bitcoin. And like you can hear our you can hear our conversation. It's still it's still out there. You can hear our conversation about Bitcoin, Stig and I. And um we Holds were just, I, 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 I can't bring myself to go back and listen to it because I'm sure I'd be embarrassed. Um, but uh, you, you hear me at the very end of it. And I said, you know what? This is crazy. The fact that we have no idea who created this or what this could possibly be. But, you know, I bought some. And I think that the, I think that the, the asymmetry of this is worth owning. Even if you don't have a big position, I think that that there's something to this. And if it would actually mature into something of a much larger scale, you know, we were throwing around like, hey, this could be worth like a trillion dollars, like this thing. And back then, I mean, the price was $200. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of clicked for me as being a potential solution to the insanity, the central banking insanity yeah. um, that was out there. You you mentioned a few moments ago. Was it the Cassandra effect where some people are in on the secret? Is that is that what it's called? No, the, I mean that that effect is you can predict the future, and I'm definitely not saying that that I can do that or anybody can do that. But mm-hmm. to this mythology is like you can predict the future, but the problem is nobody will believe you. The curse is right. That the curse that's okay, associated okay. with that is that nobody will believe you. Right. And there's a little. I I find there to be a little bit of that in a weird way with Bitcoin where, I mean, for six years, I've had people just tell me, relentlessly tell me that'll never work. That's going to be banned. Um, That doesn't make any sense. You're never going to uproot the dollar. Like the mining centralized China's China has 50% of the hash rate. Like you name it FUD. And my God, I've heard that a hundred times every single day for six years straight. And yet I'm looking at the performance of what I've purchased through the years and I'm saying, <laughs> like, you just almost want to scream at the person, how can you not see this, right? Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's going to continue to be successful in the future. And I think that's important. Like, you have to stay grounded. Although you have murdered it for a long period of time, you always have to be, you have to have your guard up. You have to cannibalize your thinking at all times. Mm-hmm. And you always have to be looking for somebody that can can provide a, a sound argument for why it could still you know fail or there's there's shortcomings or there's another protocol or whatever. Like, hey, I'll yeah. entertain all of that. I will. Well, this this is what I find so compelling and so valuable in the community that's grown up around this thing. You know, and say what you want about the laser eyes and the memes and the you know, rally the, cap, the, the behavior, all that kind of stuff. The the, yeah. the truth though is is that. That's what this community, and some people don't like that word, but this group of people that interact and talk about Bitcoin, like they want, they don't, they don't want to be deluded into thinking that this thing is something that it's not. They want to relentlessly punch holes in this thing. And so that's what we all do in these podcasts and Twitter debates and spaces and articles. Like everyone's just trying to like put maximum pressure on this thing, because if it is what we think it is, I mean, it changes Damn near everything. everything. I everything. mean, it's the base layer of civilization is is the monetary network, right? And if 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 we think that this thing actually is the the new upgrade, the replacement to what we currently have, a lot of things change. And so we almost 
it, it, and and that there's a lot to be excited about that, right? About what that actually means, what the implications are. And so I think a lot of us, if we're going to allow ourselves to be excited by that, we want to at least do our darndest to to make sure that it's a valid conviction that we hold, you know, and, and, and there, you know, people from the outside might think that we're all drinking the Kool-Aid, but on the inside, as you know, we're all fighting with each other all the time to, to determine like, what are the most valid opinions and what are the good insights? And in addition to that, we're all just like ferociously trying to learn more and more about it and keep up with it. I mean, you just mentioned that your computer was lagging because you had so many tabs open, you know, reading different articles and things happening in lightning and all this stuff. And, you know, someone, one of my colleagues here at CTGG who publishes a great piece about Bitcoin and time, and that upgrades everyone's perception about why time is such a unique element of this thing and how it changes the nature of, you know, chronology and data in, in the data structure of all this stuff. I mean, it's, and that's the process, but the, and so that enhances our conviction and our excitement, but it also makes us appear, uh, somewhat hubristic to people from the outside looking in. But the question I wanted to ask you just about your, the kind of your story to this is when, or was there a definable moment where this went from, oh, very interesting, a lot of potential to this type of conviction that we're now, now talking about? Because, you know, it's, it's typically a progression, not for everybody, but typically. Um, I was just wondering, like, was there a time that the penny really dropped and this went from being make an allocation because it's promising to this is pretty much my all in bet? Yeah. So uh, 2015, it was a couple percent position of my portfolio uh, because of the asymmetry. And I thought it was fun and I liked it. Um, by, by Christmas of 2017, I was like, wow, I don't know what this is, but my God, this is something special. I also had the same opinion that it was not going to uh, become like a global settlement layer at that point in time. And the reason why was mostly because like when I was looking at the fixed income space, uh, looking at the equity market, there was nothing there that was suggesting that we were you know, on the cusp of something insane breaking loose. Um, they still had like crazy policies and everything. But um, if you went and talked to somebody you know, who was a professional investor or whatever, like there was nobody talking about this. They were, they were mm -hmm. watching it from a distance saying, there's a bunch of crazies over there that are about to blow up in the biggest tulip trade that I've ever seen in my life. And so mm -hmm. I suspected that you were going to run out of uh, participants that were willing to step into the market and bid the price. And so that's where I, you know, I did that mayor multiple thing uh, with Trace Mayer. We were looking at the, you know, statistics, even though it wasn't normally distributed data. You didn't have any of these models and on-chain like glass node stuff back then. Um, so all we did is we just compared the price to the 200-day moving average, and we're like, hey, like what we're seeing right now is beyond a three-standard deviation move in the price. And so, you know, I'm not. I'm not proud you to say this. You traded the top and you made out like I, a bandit. I sold it, right? <laughs> but it was it was more based on the idea that, um, hey, I just, I mean, I just clobbered it. I made a lot of money in that. And I, based on what I had seen in the previous period, when you saw that spike, it took years for there to, to gain enough momentum to get more people back into it to go and make another run. It took years, mm -hmm. like, a year and a half to two years before it, it set a floor and it started coming again. 
my opinion at, in that December 2017 timeframe was that that was pretty much going to be uh, templated again. Like I thought we were going to go into a winter, at least a year long. And I suspected even after paying the capital gains, which were was not pleasant to pay, um, I I was of the opinion that I was going to be able to re-enter the position. I loved the position. I loved it, even though I sold it in in 2017. Mm. And then I just I told myself, I'm not going to look at this thing for like a month and a half. Like I'm just completely going to ignore it because based on that previous cycle, um, there was a lot of like recoveries that didn't make it right. And I knew psychologically that, that it was going to mess me up if I kept watching it really closely after I sold it. So I just like did not look at the screen. Right. Luckily. And I'm, I mean this, I was very lucky. Right. Um, I think anybody trying to do this now they're out of their mind. I think mm-hmm. they're absolutely out of their mind trying to do something like that right now. Yeah. I know I'm sure as hell not doing that right now. Um, so, so regardless of how, uh, how crazy things may get, you're just hodling tight. Yeah. Pretty much. No matter what. Yeah. Because mm. here's, what's different. You literally have countries that are adopting this as a legal tender. They're mm. using it at, at a settlement layer. You got immediate swaps like the Jack Mahler stuff where they're using the back end rails for clearance. None of that. I mean, hell, you just got the SegWit update there in the summer of 2017, right? Like we, we back during that time, we didn't know how this was even going to scale so that you could get immediate clearance, right? You, we, the, the update happened there in the summer of 17 and lightning, like we knew lightning was coming, but would lightning even work? No Mm. one knew, right? We had no clue. Well, we now know it works and it works really well. And, uh, and I think we're still at the infancy of, of that whole network being, you know, on the second layer. And, uh, but with that said, like you go down to El Salvador, I mean, you can go to McDonald's and you can use the lightning network because that's what everything's happening with down there. So mm-hmm. um, you're just at a total different level of maturation in the timeline and so when I look at it from a risk standpoint, um, when this next halving came in, uh, what was it? May 11th of, uh, what was it? 20? Yeah. Mm. Um, when that came around, I was just looking at, you know, you had the stock to flow there, whether that was valid or not. I was of the opinion that there was a lot of merit in that. Um, and, you know, you sometimes you just make a really big bet. And I did. And, you know, like anybody else who made the big bet. Uh, and then you had COVID also kind of like that played out just months before that. And I saw the response and I'm saying to myself, however this was going to end, it just got like accelerated at warp speed, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, interest rates compressed to nothing everywhere. 20 trillion of negative interest rate bonds on the, you know, in the marketplace. Totally mind blowing insane. If you had aliens that came from outer space and landed here right now, and you told them that that, that, that amount of buying power was pent up in a fixed income lending market, they would think that, that we were the inferior species on the planet. <laughs> right? It's that insane. <laughs> Uh-huh. And yet there's human beings that just walk around like that is just normal. 
Mm-hmm. And so you got all those things kind of like there's so I could go on and on and on about how yeah, insane well, this is right there's now. A, there's a ton of stuff we have to hit on, but that, I mean, th- this is actually one of the finer points that I think often gets lost, particularly by the Bitcoin detractors is because a lot of these people uh, realize the problem, right? In, in different ways, but people realize like you can't go around printing trillions of dollars. You can't go around having tens of trillions of dollars, negative yielding debt, like something is clearly amiss. And you'd, you'd have to be pretty thick not to, to see that. Yeah. I think, you know, myself back in 08, and even to a certain degree now, I think a lot of us ask, well, like, when's the big, when's the grand finale? And I think a lot, of, you know, what, what Bitcoin does is twofold, really. Bitcoin really seems to clarify perception on understanding all this stuff, you know, uh, monetary policy, economics, finance, like it's just, it's that constant that opens up. It's like that unlock that allows you to understand so much of this other stuff. It makes it make sense again. Whereas, you know, the, the existing fiat system of finance and markets and economics, like it's hard to sift through because there's so much unnecessary complexity there. But the, the thing is, is that Bitcoin is a reflection of the collapse that's been happening Ever since it was born, basically. And everything starts about to this. make sense. Everything exactly. starts to make sense. Yeah. And so if your unit of account is the dollar, then you're still on the sidelines being like, gee, they must have they must have saved it once again and things are on the up and up. And look at everyone's portfolio. But if you're you and, and that's the conceit, is your unit of account. Right. So if, if your unit account of one thing, things might seem hunky dory. But if it's another thing, it tells a totally different story. And yes. so if you use Bitcoin as your unit of account, then all of this starts to become clear. Then you then what you see is fiat currencies are collapsing rapidly. Right. Then you see that uh, equities and bonds and pretty much everything else is in real terms going down. Right. Your purchasing power is going down. Indisputable. And yeah. And, and this is like this is kind of mind blowing for a lot of people because people we, we, you grow up and you just de facto adopt a unit of account, which is usually your national currency or the dominant currency that you trade in, like the US dollar and such. But yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on just how that lens changes your perception of how all this is playing out right now? Every, you finally get this sense of like, oh, wow. Okay, well, this is insane, but at least it makes sense. For most people, they're living through the insanity and they have no answer why. And, and that can be really painful to like, look at it because what happens is, is your, your perception of the world becomes very dark and very jaded. And you start to think that you're the crazy person amongst zombies. And, um, so, you know, uh, some of my frustration, you hit on this a little bit is if you've ever led a bunch of people, you'll learn real fast as a leader that most people are problem identifiers. They are not problem solvers. And uh, when I look at the uh, academia and I look at people in professional finance, Wall Streeters in particular, they all want to, and you, you see their podcast for traditional finance. They're out there. They're talking about the problem over and over and over and over again. They talk about, like, I'll just give you an example. Lacey Hunt, right? smart as hell, can identify the living hell out of this problem, right? Lacey, what's the solution? 
What's the solution? How will this thing resolve itself? And don't tell me what you think the solution should be. Tell me what you think the solution, uh, how it will happen, irregardless of what, what it is you want it to be, mm. right? Because I can tell you a solution that I want it to be, right? If I'm, if I'm one of these macro geniuses, right? I say, well, I think G7 needs to sit down. They need to maybe adopt the SDR. They need to peg it to gold and like all this, these swoopy ideas. So they're telling you the solution from the lens of like what they, what they think it should be. Mm. But I would tell you the great investors, the people who are looking at um, the ability to like project where this thing's going to go, they're trying to forecast what will happen based off of the environmental conditions and the incentives that exist that's going to propel a solution, whether you like the solution or not, into place. Because if you, if you look at it from that frame of reference, not what's good for me, but what, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Like if a hurricane's coming, like I could say, well, the solution here is we obviously need to go out there and drop a nuclear weapon into the center of, of the hurricane and then it's going to stop it. And then every, everybody's going to be perfectly fine. You realize real fast that that's not a solution that you can actually do because of the fallout and blah, 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 right? Like all that stuff. Like that's what all these economists and, and experts are doing. Mm. Instead of saying, this thing's going to make landfall, right? And here's where it's going to hit. And these are all the bad things that are going to, that are going to pop out of it, Right. But if we, if we move right now and we start making alerts, we can get people out of the way and we can minimize the damage that's coming. But the damage is coming, right? You can't stop the hurricane from coming. And in a way, that is Bitcoin. I think, I think Bitcoin's going to wreak havoc in a short time frame. And then I think the, the repair that's going to basically come out of it is going to be incredible. And I think it's very different from like the hurricane scenario. I think that once people start to get paid in Bitcoin, they're then going to have this total change in sense of responsibility and this, this uh, newfound uh, optimistic view of the world for themselves and for mankind. And that is so powerful. And, and the, an example mm. I like to use is if you were playing a video game, and I'm not a gamer, but uh, you know, if you were playing a video game and you were playing level one and you got three-fourths of the way through the level, you want to try again. Like you're playing Mario or whatever. And I'm sure I'm sounding like super old talking about Mario. <laughs> but like you got three-fourths of the way through the level and you're like, you know, what? I want another try. I'm going to beat the level. The next time you play the level, you get 50% of the way through the level. You're like, okay, well, that sucks. I just did worse. So you're like, mm. let me play it one more time. The next time you play it, you get 25% of the way through the level. And you're like, this level sucks. This game sucks, right? I don't want to play this game. And I think for most people on the planet, that's exactly how they feel like right now. What mm. they want to do is they want to pull the game out of the, out of the system and they want to burn it. Because yeah. they're frustrated. Because the harder mm. they work, the less they have. And what Bitcoin's going to supply, and it's, it's going to be a painful transition at first, but eventually what it's going to supply is now you're going to pass level one. You're going to go to level two. And then you're going to feel like you can actually get to level three. 
And people now have a drive and an incentive to play the game. And boy, oh boy, what change that's going to bring just mentally from a collective standpoint, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and obviously, you know, the, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? And so a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, I mean, this is something I love to explore is how much this new perceptive filter, let's call it, at least in the economic or financial realm, does change your relationship to your, your future, your ambitions for the future, your aspirations, your sense of fairness, your sense of whether or not your hard work and your ingenuity will actually pay off to the degree that you think it it. it that it, you think is fair, right? As you say, the rules of the game are, are are known and unchanging. And that's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that everyone's treated the same, right? Nobody gets these unfair advantages. And, you know, inflation's starting to emerge in the, in the, in the rhetoric, you know, today, right? Politicians are talking about even your, you know, your, your lay person uh, has heard the term and it's because it's, it's, it's emerging, but people, tend to think of inflation just as rising prices. And that's bad because I can't afford as much. But the mechanism of inflation, the outcome is rising prices. But what it actually is, is a wealth transfer. It's a transfer to the people that get to spend those dollars first and who, who, who those dollars are allocated to. And so what you, what you get is this increasing divide socially until those people that you just referred to that are playing the game and continue to get... Uh, less and less and less progress the more times they play it at a certain point as you say they just they want to burn it down they want to i'm not playing this game anymore this 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 is clearly unfair and i you know i we always speculate about like how will the transition to a hyper bitcoinized world be right when when bitcoin is the base layer and people are using it as money and you know the the rosy picture is like well there's two trains going right and people you know, this one's heading off a cliff and this one is heading to a renaissance and people just keep hopping off the bad one into the good one and maybe it won't be so messy. But, you know, the incumbent powers and the legacy system is very entrenched. And, you know, so there, there probably will be some some friction in that transition. But I agree that it's incredibly hopeful. And I do think that that message is starting to get out. Like, the, the, the waters are very muddy right now. There's all these other cryptocurrencies and there's all these other competing interests. The gold bugs are still around and people think there's political solutions to all this kind of stuff. And that is where all this education and this content and this media that people in this space put out, that's what that's trying to address. But I do think the very simple narrative, like, guys, this is a fair money. Every, this is a money where nobody can take it from you. Everybody plays by the same rules. What do you think? And totally as agree. we see, as we see examples of this play out and succeed, you know, we'll see what happens in El Salvador, how the people feel about it, how the economy does as a result, how Bitcoiners do when they shift their unit of account to Bitcoin rather than dollars or euros and how they're doing in their lives and how they, how hopeful they are for the future, how, you know, their state of mental health. I mean, there's a lot wrapped up in this and I, you know, I, I, I hope and we're obviously both very in the weeds on this, so we may not be the most objective, but I hope the tide is just beginning to turn where the, 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 the narrative around this is becoming easier to articulate. Let's put it that way, you know, because it, it goes through these different narratives throughout Bitcoin's history. And maybe they, they didn't always appeal to, you know, the mass person, right, the average person. But I, I think, you know, the, the pitch of this just being a, a freer, fairer money 
for you to store, you know, your wealth in and transact with, with whomever you want to transact with is, is pretty simple pitch, you know? Yeah. I mean, the central bankers have been able to get away with it because you haven't seen the disruption and the price signals of the, uh, the stuff that's obvious. Like the price signal disruption has been there for education, mm. uh, healthcare, but it's, it's kind of like, uh, the, the blinders are there. Maybe you kind of sense it a little bit, but it's not real. When you go to the grocery store and your grocery bill is double what you used to pay, or you go and you're buying some wood for a deck and it's 300% higher, you were trying to have a house built and uh, you know from the price you were quoted to what it actually came out with was a 50% increase. All of a sudden, a lot of people start asking, hey, they, they just passed another bill for $3.5 trillion. Like, when does this start to matter? Right. And you have everybody asking that question right now. Mm. And so they're looking for, well, how, how can they possibly keep doing this? They can't possibly keep doing this. There's it just, it goes against every intuition I have in my, in my body. Right. They don't have to have a degree in economics whatsoever. They just have really good intuition. That's, that's wired into just how nature works. And they know that you can't just make up money or else everybody would just be printing and making up money. And so um, you're getting that. Now, one of the things that I just find fascinating is throughout, throughout time, debt jubilees have happened typically about every 50 years. This is documented in tons of different books. And uh, you know, we haven't had what I would refer to as a debt jubilee for probably 80 years for, since back in the uh, Great Depression timeframe. Um, you, this is, this is going to be a debt jubilee and Bitcoin is going to basically be the thing that supplies it. And where, uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners like, well, you got to own Bitcoin to, to benefit from this transition. And I would tell you that's not necessarily true. So, uh, and you, you will have to own Bitcoin. Don't mistake in that, right? You will have to own Bitcoin at some point, but if you're late to the party, Let's say you don't start buying Bitcoin until the price is a million, right? I think that you're still, um, you are still to the left of the 50% mark at that price point. Totally. Right? Mm -hmm. And so if you, let's say that's the price that you come in at and you're to the left of the 50% mark, you're going to increase whatever net worth you had if you start denominating your unit of account in Bitcoin at a million um, where I think it starts getting to the other side of the 50% mark is probably around 2.5 to 5 million. You start getting onto the, to the right side of the 50% mark. And let's say that that's you. Let's say that you're, you're just really, you just don't buy this. But at that point, like it's becoming very obvious that this thing's taking over. Well, if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, right? And mm. you got 90 per, you're 90% levered on your house. You only own 10% of the equity on the house. That house is denominated in, in dollars, right? If it's a $300,000 house and you still got $270,000 to pay on it in fiat, denominated in fiat like the contract specifies, and you start getting paid in Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin goes from a million to three million, right? And you started to denominate that, that check into that new uh, money slash currency that spends like currency. All of a sudden, that, that payment on that house starts to get really easy to make. And mm -hmm. so that's the debt jubilee, is people that are levered. And let me tell you, 
everybody is levered to their eyeballs everywhere on the planet. And so you're going to have this situation. And John, this is, the, this is the easiest way I could describe it. You got people that are 50 years old, still don't own their house. Like not even close to owning their house. Like they probably only have 50% of it paid off and they're that old. Now think about it. They've worked their entire lives. How the hell don't they have their house paid off? Right? If you went out and you had an ax and you went out there and you were literally chopping down trees and you were going to build yourself a log cabin, is it going to take you 40 years to do that? Probably not. No. <laughs> right? They're slaves. They just don't know they're slaves. Because when you're in debt up to your eyeballs like that and you've been incentivized to, be, to get in debt up to your eyeballs like that, it's when you have a, a, a currency that's devaluing itself, especially now devaluing itself, which I would argue are double-digit in, inflationary numbers, it's just expressing itself in asset prices. That's why you're not seeing it in the price of, of goods or the CPIs, only 5%. Like When you have that much debasement, People don't understand like what's happening upstairs, but they are totally being conditioned to spend that money as fast as they possibly can and lever as much as they can. And they're doing mm -hmm. it. And so now you're getting to the point where when this eventually pops and this thing takes over, you're going to have a global debt jubilee. They typically happen at a national level and you can typically see them because you know, you go back in time, the, the countries that were surrounding the ones that were going through this currency meltdown, it became obvious and you'd want to hold the other currency. So like you go back to the 1920s in Germany, you read the headlines in the papers and the headlines are company XYZ is now denominating all of their retained earnings in US dollars. They're not keeping it in, in marks. Mm. Uh, and so those, those are what the headlines look like throughout time when you have a currency meltdown. Well, right now you're seeing companies denominate their Bitcoin or denominate their balance sheet in Bitcoin. They're not doing it in gold. Ain't nobody denominating nothing in gold on their balance sheets. In fact, even the gold companies are trying to get it off their balance sheets. Michael Saylor had just an amazing uh, debate on gold and he brought this point up. Like the real tell, of a gold company is, are you saving everything that you're mining as, as best you can onto your balance sheet? And are you taking out loans um, and fiat in order to try to keep as much of that on your balance sheet as possible? And the answer is yeah. not only no, but hell no. They're trying to get it off their books and sell it as fast as possible. It tells you everything you need to know about gold. Um, and, and of course, Bitcoin companies are the exact opposite. Yeah. So there's a few things to unpack there. One is you're suggesting, so putting aside the kind of de facto Bitcoin debt jubilee for a moment, you think because of all this debt, you know, government debt that's been racked up, you think there will be explicit debt jubilees happening in the next five to 10 years rather well, I don't than think just they're slow be, motion default through inflation? I don't think they're going to be explicit. I think it's totally implicit. Like okay. uh, you, you'd probably have your academics to be like, well, that's not a debt jubilee. Sure. Well, whatever terminology you want, you want to use, it's a terminology that people can understand. You're going to mm -hmm. have debt forgiveness in the way that, I mean, think of it like this. If you were in Zimbabwe before their currency hyperinflated and you bought a house for $300,000, right? 
You, you have skills in the market. You are a person who's going to continue to be employed because you're adding value to that economy, right? But the currency is hyperinflating. Well, you inked a contract that says, I'll pay it back in fixed rate terms over 30 years, $300,000. Well, mm-hmm. now they're, they're pumping out $100 trillion notes. So I can literally work for five minutes and pay off the house. <laughs> yeah. Like with a lot to spare. Right. In those well, units, right? Yeah. In those units that they're using to... So, I mean, that's, that's how I see this, this playing out. This brings us to the really interesting dynamic that um, prevails in the world today. And Michael Saylor is a great example of this, right? Because Saylor took his balance sheet, took his, his uh, cash balance, took his cash flows and said, would I rather this be in USD or would I rather this be in Bitcoin? And yes, he's early to Bitcoin, had the, you know, went down the rabbit hole, has all the foresight. He's still, you know, just one guy in a relatively small company. But what he's doing is exactly what you just said, right? He's, he's borrowing cheap debt at, at low rates, denominated in USD, or in some cases, you know, convertible equity, you know, some, some other setup, but more or less borrowing in, in US denom- USD denominated debt and using it to buy Bitcoin. Which seems and he's like, selling stock. He, he's uh, right, open to right. selling common stock, which tells you everything you need to know about what he thinks about the valuation of his company right now. Mm-hmm. It's overvalued. But the, the, the thing is, is it's just, and you know, that may be the case, but it's just one company. And as you mentioned in, in Germany and in Zimbabwe, like as, as these institutions, central banks, governments, et cetera, they try to paper over these situ- the, you know, the, the faults in this situation by artificially lowering interest rates, pumping money into the system, and you know, asset prices go up, and a certain cohort of people say, "Ah, eh, it's not so bad. My house is up thirty percent. My portfolio is up twenty five percent. You know, whatever. The government can just go and do what they want." But obviously, because that's so artificial, to your point about kind of a natural, uh, you know, natural way of things happening you can't kind of you can't avoid nature eventually people uh borrow against the new equity that's in their house and that money comes into creation and gets put in the system prices go up further and the actions from the central banks and the governments have to happen have to be even more exacerbated but then in response to this inflation well then there's pressure to raise rates well if we raise rates and what happens to the debt service that you know we have to pay because of all this accumulated debt so they're in a rock in between a rock and a hard place and then you introduce this phenomenon where now the entire world has very easy access to a far better monetary unit store of value instrument whatever you want to call it that's growing at let's you know conservatively say 150% compound annual growth for the last 10 years or so and what does that mean to how all this plays out because you know the cats pretty, it's going to be out of the bag soon, right? Like Sailor is talking, you, you, you and I both know he's, he's in boardrooms and on zoom calls and he's back channeling the hell out of this thing to everybody and their, and their mother in the world right now. And he's saying, and not that he has to, cause he's very public about what he's doing. He's saying, look, I'm, tr- I'm taking debt that, as you said, is going to be m- more easy to service as time goes on. And I'm investing in this thing that's, that's increasing in value and that's at the very beginning of, let's say, its adoption S-curve, right? So it's, a, it's such a no-brainer that once more companies do this, how fast does that accelerate the issues with the legacy system and how they operate and how they are attempting to paper over what's going on? 
It's mathematics. Greg Foss says it all the time. I completely agree with him. <laughs> Grade 11 you know, math. As an engineer, you know, I love math. And um, it's just mathematics. Like the whole thing is just one giant mathematical equation. And when you look at the critical variable in that equation, it's interest rates. And uh, they're totally broke. <laughs> and so to my comment about Michael, you know, like, so he, he has it that he can issue more stock to raise free cash or to, to raise cash flow so that he can use it to buy more Bitcoin. Well, he wouldn't be doing that if he thought his company was properly priced. Okay. If the, if the market price on his, on his equity was lower than where it is today, he wouldn't be doing that. Right. But he also understands that because everything in the marketplace is priced at a 35 times earnings PE, uh, because interest rates are compressed so low, so is his company. Because, you know, all these analysts, they're doing parametric. Well, they're the other company that has assets like MicroStrategy, they, they uh, trade for a 33 times earnings multiple. So it should be somewhere around there, right? That's how they're doing it. It's almost like the... Um, like a realtor, when they when you go to buy a house, like well, the comps on the house, the other one that had the square footage like ten doors down, appraised at three hundred thousand. So we think yours should be the same, right? Mm-hmm. What people fail to understand is those are really generic shortcuts that will work when you're dealing with a stable currency. When you're dealing with an unstable currency that's being debased at a breakneck pace. Uh, there's a whole lot of people that are going to get an education on how real financial valuation works. And the way real financial valuation works is based on free cash flows of a stable unit of account that can be exchanged. Um, and when you do that, and especially at the, at, the preface, at the precipice of where we're at right now, where you're getting, you're getting much closer to this phase transition to a different unit of account. I cannot possibly own equity right now. It's impossible for me to own equity right now because of the mathematics. There's nothing emotional about it. It's just pure math. Because when I look at an interest rate of, you know, everything's priced at like 3% right now, 2 to 3%. And I say, uh, if interest rates are actually free and open, I think they're going to, especially, and this is really important, especially after they've been compressed for 40 years straight, I think when that pendulum swings the other way, it's going to be so mind-melting that people won't believe what rates they see. And I think they're going double digits. And uh, in the example that I use when I'm trying to describe this, this mathematics of evaluation, like let's just be really conservative and say it goes to 10%. So you go from these PEs of 35, and we'll just we'll say it's 33 for easier math. Uh, when you go from a PE of 33 and you go down to a PE of 10, um, you're pretty much going from if if your Apple stock was 100, well now it's 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 going to 33 dollars in buying power terms, and it's really important that people quantify that in buying power terms. So. Um, you know, I don't, what in the world can you buy today for a hundred bucks? Whatever it is, um, it'll be one third of that in buying power for that same Apple stock on the other side of this thing. Right. So can I own that right now at those market caps? Hell no, I can't. 
And let me tell you, I'm very patient. I can wait. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, you're, I, I agree with you to say on the other side of this, but like that repricing is happening in Bitcoin as we speak. As right? we speak. And so as you know, the other side of this is just when this process that's currently happening has had a chance to fully or mostly play out. Right? Right. This is why, you know, as you say, the unit of account is so important. Take the S&P denominated in Bitcoin, you know, or Apple denominated in Bitcoin or anything denominated in Bitcoin. And that's that's why you can't hold anything. That's why you can't make equity investments. Right. Because against Bitcoin, they're going down because Bitcoin is rectifying that capital misallocation that's happened as a result of these perverted interest rates for the last 50 years. You know, these these manipulated interest rates create so much capital misallocation, which creates capital destruction. And as you say, when that pendulum swings, the new interest rate and the which is denominated in Bitcoin, right, a, a, a far better money that has to price in all the capital destruction that's happened over the past 40 years, right? Because the, the capital stock has been, in many cases, withering away because of this, you know, perversion of the true cost of capital, and it needs to write it somehow. And for a period of time, it's going to write it by saying, hey, we don't have that, you know, there's, there's not that much capital to be lent out for production for a period of time, right? We need to build this back up. and. You know, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out on a Bitcoin standard. On, on the flip side of that, I think capital efficiency will be so dramatically improved via a mechanism like Bitcoin that that may, may help counterbalance some of the, you know, the tight capital tightness, let's say, of, of that pendulum swinging back. But yeah, it's, um, it's one other be interesting. Thing, one other thought on that. So you hear a lot of people say like, oh, well, the Bitcoin's so cons- uh, consolidated into so, so few hands. It's, it's no better than the, old, than the system we're in right now where all the buying power is consolidated into the 1%. What people don't realize is people who really understand this, they're going to be more than happy to give up their Bitcoin to own equity once the prices make sense. And that's how you're going to get the distribution of this to spread and... and, and it's going to be much more normally distributed. These coins are going to be much more normally distributed because right now all that equity is in the hands of one of the one percenters. But those one percenters are going to be selling their equities because they're going to have to own Bitcoin, right? And at a certain point, especially if the yields on that in free cash flow terms, when denominated with a with a Bitcoin balance sheet, start to get compressed on the equity below uh, fixed income rates. I all of a sudden become a huge buyer of equity, mm. like massive buyer. Like I would, I yeah. would literally give up all my Bitcoin to own the equity at that point. And so, yeah. so then that Bitcoin goes to whoever those people are that are scared to death and don't know what's happening and don't know how to do real financial valuation. And then I become the owner of the, of the, of the equity and I'm kicking off free cash flows of probably something that's yielding uh, double digits. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is something I I talk to people about fairly often these days to try to develop a perspective that is more helpful when they're trying to when they're looking at this thing, and that is basically that you know one day's Bitcoin is going to be very boring. It's just money, right? It's just it's that performing that store value. Like talking about the dollar, yeah, yeah. yeah, It'd be like talking about the dollar today. Exactly, and at that point, other opportunities where you you know you you have an opportunity for a greater return will emerge, 
right? But we're, yeah. we're not there yet. We, we've got a, a long and interesting road to run before we get there. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about that, Preston, is this, this window of opportunity where we're in this environment where rates are artificially low, Bitcoin exists and it's still very early in its adoption. You know, let's say 100 to 200 million people hold it and we haven't seen widespread institution, institutional adoption yet. How long do you think this window of opportunity where companies can make that move, where they can borrow cheap debt and plow it into Bitcoin? How long do you think that's going to last? Because it, it, on the one hand, it seems a little bit too good to be true. Uh, and the other hand, you know, a lot of things could change in the broader macro landscape that might change the, the, the characteristics of that opportunity. I think once you go over a million of Bitcoin, I think it's going to move so fast that the people that are trying to put that, that trade or that, uh, that hack on, it's going to be moving too fast that they're, they're going to be kind of left. Everybody's going to be left in the dust. So you've probably got between now and a million uh, per Bitcoin to be able to, to do kind of this, this sailor uh, trade. Um, and, and you have to, and I think this is really important, you have to have a pristine balance sheet to be doing what Michael Saylor's doing. Pristine. You can't be levered mm-hmm. in other areas for the assets that, you're, that you have that are producing the free cash flow of your business. Um, so he was in a very unique situation. He had the corporate governance structure to be able to outvote everybody to do the bold move. And he had the pristine balance sheet where he, his debt to equity and his coverage ratio could support making a decision like this. He, um, he actually had the retained earnings, liquid retained earnings to do it. And so like how many companies out there do you think really kind of meet those three criteria that are publicly traded businesses that you would even see this type of thing happen? Because if it's a private company, you're not going to see it. I'm a private company. You're not going to see crap, right? (laughs) I'm just a, I'm a, a minnow man. Right. But these other, uh, these other private equity, like they're not showing you crap. So how many people are owning a billion dollar size company that kind of fit those three criteria? Well, you're, you're kind of seeing it. It's one. And then they got, <laughs> and then they got to understand all this. They, they got to understand this really macro uh, theme and they've got to really kind of have an in-depth like Ray Dalio level of understanding of like how financial markets work at a macro level. And let me tell you, most are operators. Most are producing a service or a product, and that's their forte. It's not that they're some expert in, in economics, right? Mm. So Michael fits the bill on all that stuff. He's a unicorn in that regards where he understands all those things. He understands micro uh, security analysis valuations at the, inf- like, at the highest level. And so he's able to do these crazy things. And, and people are looking at it and say, that guy is such a risk taker. When I look at that guy, I'm saying... <laughs> He is being ultra conservative with his company by what he's doing. Yeah, well, th- this is the paradox that I've been trying to explain to people in my life recently, and that Bitcoin is simultaneously the most conservative asset you can own because of its complete lack of counterparty risk, because of how easy it is to custody and the costs associated with it, and because I guess you have to sprinkle in a little bit of my, my bullish conviction on there. Um, but because of its, you know, the stage and its uh, life cycle or, or its adoption curve, it also has a tremendous asymmetric upside return potential, right? And those two things don't usually go hand in hand. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's kind of a similar thing where you're talking about Sailor being 
ultra conservative because, you know, financial news media would say he's being and have said that he's being incredibly irresponsible, but seen through a different lens, he's being one incredibly (laughs) rational. And like you said, I mean, what's more conservative doing what he's doing or retaining all your earnings and keeping it in, in USD cash on the balance sheet or negative real yield bonds, you know, like which one's more far, conservative? I mean, as far as financial, you know, news sources and anchors, like you got Joe Weisenthal or whatever, who's out there trying to support a trillion dollar coin for God's sake, right? Like, <laughs> are these people like experts in like valuation? Are these people experts in, in like actually compounding capital at, at, outsized returns that exceed just like indexes? I don't know, but I highly doubt it. Yeah. Suspicious as well. Um, Preston, we, we, I touched on a second ago there about what, how much of a more efficient capital market Bitcoin will foster. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Cause I'm sure you've, you've thought about it just, you know, when we won't just get a real interest rate, but we'll get a real time interest rate as well. And, you know, it will be sourced in very novel ways. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how you thought about the efficiency of capital. I I think about this a lot and I, uh, I find it to be one of the most, uh, fun topics to really kind of dissect with close friends. Um, so here's my thoughts on it. I'm sure you've heard the narrative that lightning might act as like a, uh, uh, a risk-free rate. Um, Mm -hmm in the future. I kind of think that that might be the case. Um, when I think about, uh, how that mechanism is going to kind of play out, um, people are going to have to be incentivized to provide liquidity into the lightning network for your, for your transactional throughput. Um, if you're a company, let's say you're like Visa, I'll just pull the thread on like Visa. Um, they're able to literally just take an axe to their entire Rube Goldberg machine. That's probably 1% like of that 2.9% fee that they're charging. I would imagine like 1% of that or a one and a half percent. And I'm sure somebody in the audience listening know, actually knows the number, but I'm just guessing uh, 1% or 1.5% of that 2.9% is just expense for clearing. Right? So if you would if you would know how much capital those assets represent for that clearing mechanism, I have no idea what the number is. Uh, now they have an incentive to lock up those funds or whatever the whatever the amount would be into lightning in order to remove and, and cut that expense out. So you're going to get into this optimization piece where do they lock up a uh, billion dollars in channels? to Amazon and all the big vendors so that they can totally remove that. And this is just going to be a short-term play for them because do they become obsolete five years, 10 years later? I don't know. But there's going to be people that are incentivized to lock up funds into these channels to provide enough liquidity. And if for whatever reason, there's not enough liquidity in these channels, well, the fees are going to go up, right? That's just a fact. Like Because if you're going to try to tap into large channels for a $10,000, uh, purchase, um, you got to have the channel throughput to do that. And, and if you're not willing to lock up $10,000 worth of, of Bitcoin buying power into these channels, well, then you're going to have to pay somebody to use theirs. So I think in in general, it's going to, it's going to have some type of maturation where it becomes 
the risk-free rate. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see whether that plays out. But then on top of that, you have just lending in general. So like today you go to like the FTX, they're, they're providing 5.1%, I think for anything over a $10,000 buying power deposit. Um, you see some that are a little higher, you see some that are a little lower. This is for Bitcoin. So then how does that market come into play for like actual lending? I think it's going to go up tremendously, um, <laughs> the demand for that, but you're going to have to see just obscene volatility in the price of, of Bitcoin. Like when you start, like I imagine, I imagine like, look at the contango today that exists uh, after a little bit of a run in Bitcoin. I think we're doing like 10% risk-free uh, trade because of that contango. Um, now imagine if the price just jumped from 200,000 to 300,000 in a matter of a couple weeks. What will the contango look like um, in that situation? Will we still have 10%? Can, can you explain contango just for, for those that may not be familiar? So, so you're getting into advanced financial stuff, having taken a class in derivatives and, and not, not enjoying the class. It kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're a person who's listening to this, you don't have a financial background. Um, how can I explain this as simply as possible? Your, your future price is higher than your spot price. So if the spots, let's just use simple numbers, is 10, your future price three months from now might be 14 or fit, let's use 15. Okay. Um, now, why would a contango situation exist? Well, it, it can exist for a couple different reasons, but the market in general is expecting the price to go higher. And so that higher expectation in the future starts getting bid into the price, that expectation, expectation in the front running. Another consideration that is very, uh, that, that applies to pretty much any other commodity outside of Bitcoin. Uh, in, in general terms is that the price of storage typically gets built into that cost of the future curve. So like if I have to store, if I buy the spot at 10 and I've got to store the oil for three months before I put it back onto the market, that cost of storage gets bid into that future price, right? And then it's also accounting for what the market is generally expecting the price to become. Long, long story short, this is how your interest rates for Bitcoin, in my opinion, are going to be constructed, um, is how much of that spread exists in, in Contango, right? That a person can step in by, by the spot, sell a futures contract and capture that spread. And today, right now, as we're recording this, that spread's about 10% risk-free. So, um, in my opinion is, is if the price really starts to run and like, let's say you're going through a hyper... Bitcoinization scenario. What would the contango look like? What would that risk-free trade all of a sudden look like? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a whole lot more in 10%, in my opinion, but who mm -hmm. knows, right? Yeah. And so if you're, if you're making deposits on exchanges for people to go out and do these types of activities, um, you know, if, if, if it's 10% and well, maybe you're, you're getting 5% after the exchange eats up all their costs and everything, right? To, to perform these activities, on your behalf, whether you understand them or not. Uh, long story short, so we're talking about interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. So you got you got all of that kind of happening, 
And when you get to the other side of it, like let's say you get to the other side of the black hole, well, what does it, what do those lending rates look like? Well, you're going to be in this situation where you have a lot of people that are holding a significant amount of the Bitcoin that really don't have much of an incentive to lend it out because they're pretty darn wealthy, right? Like they, they're going to be able to, I mean, my God, John, this number is going to sound asinine, but I, I think, I think one Bitcoin will be about a hundred salaries for a person. Like uh, the buying power of one salary today, and this, and these are really generic annual salary, an annual salary. Let's just say we're using like a hundred thousand dollars for an annual salary. I think that's going to be the equivalent of about a million sats. So if you got one Bitcoin, that's a hundred million sats. Um, that's a hundred years, $10 million Bitcoin, right? Well, that number is not going to make sense. Like eventually you're going to be at 50, see, sure, sure. $50 million right. Bitcoin, but the trust right. has eroded at that point. It comes down to the buying power that, that that's associated with that. I think the right. buying power of one Bitcoin, a hundred million SAS is about a hundred years worth of salaries. <laughs> um, and people that are listening to this, go, go do your own math and see what you think. And, you know, put, put it in the comments. But, but I'm sitting here just like, yeah, go on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now think about that. If you're a person who, and, and where 80% of the Bitcoin lie today, um, probably are with people that have more than one Bitcoin, right? So if you've got this windfall, um, what's your incentive to start lending some of that out? Well, you could, you could play both sides of the coin. You could say, well, because the person has so much Bitcoin, they have no incentive to lend it out. They're just going to live off of it and just, you know, they don't have to become some incredible investor at that point. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, think, I think it might be on the other side where most people are going to be like, well, I got all this money. I might as well try to compound it or, or make some. So they'll, then they'll lend it out. And so maybe I, it's hard for me to really kind of analyze uh, what that's going to be at, what, what that activity is going to be like on a net basis. Are more people going to mm-hmm. be interested in lending because they're wealthy or are they going to not be interested in lending because they just don't need to? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but well, that's what's going to drive. The, the reason that's important is because that's going to play into the supply and demand of the lending rates. Because if you have a bunch of people that aren't willing to lend, well, you're going to have higher lending rates. Yeah. But you know... So two things about that. The first is, you know, it's going to be a mixed bag, of course, but what I, maybe I'm being a little bit uh, naive here, but I think, you know, those future Bitcoiners, because, you know, one of the reasons why they're in this space, you know, yes, they want to enhance their wealth, but there's also a lot of ideological components to being involved in Bitcoin early, right? You saw the faults in the existing system. You wanted a freer world. You wanted a more abundant, peaceful, equitable world. And therefore, you got involved in Bitcoin. You had a, you know, I'm going down with the ship sort of mentality. And what do you know, it worked out. And here you are with lots of capital at your disposal. I think one of the outcomes of that will be people will put their capital to work in a manner that helps to construct and build and foster the world, you know, the type of world that they want to see. So there's always going to be an economic component to those decisions. But I, I do think, and from my observations thus far, I do think that cohort of people that were early in Bitcoin that become the capital allocators of the future, I do think they will have both the means and the desire to allocate capital along 
for lack of a better term, let's say ideological lines. And I think, so there will be an element of of capital coming online for those reasons, right? Even if, even if they're not incentivized or motivated financially for, for the return. But the, the other thing that I just, it, it continues to blow my mind is just the, the, the immediate real time pricing and distribution of capital. Like we are so far from that today, right? We have, Governments setting artificial rates on a quarterly, biannual, whatever it ends up being um, basis. And that is what the world has to contend with, right? And it's completely untethered from reality and it creates all sorts of disruptions in the markets because it, it, it is not a true reflection of one, the capital stock that's available and two, the time preferences and the, the preferences of both the, the lenders and the borrowers. It's, it's completely detached from that. But what Bitcoin will introduce and on Lightning or other layers or a mix of, of all this stuff taken together is one, a global market, right? Everyone operating on the same unit of account, the same currency, right? All these different financial markets becoming unsiloed, all one network. And, then, and so it doesn't matter if you're in the Philippines, in the US, in Canada, in Europe, you can access markets for the currency that you hold. And then because Lightning is so immediate and so cheap to transact, I mean, you'll get real-time rates at different scales of borrowing anywhere in the world. Like you, you, I could offer an overnight loan to someone in the Philippines at a 10% rate. Or, and of course, there'll be aggregate, aggregators as well. So if you want to borrow a billion dollars, well, this is what the global, real-time, efficient, single unit of account, unsiloed market is currently offering for a billion dollars at six months, a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years. Like, And it will be constantly readjusting based on the economic realities that, that prevail at the time. Yes. Right? And that's exactly how it should be. I mean, you could, you could make the case that, you know, civilizations rise or fall based on the efficiency of the, uh, of the use of capital, right? And money is meant to be the thing that facilitates that. And this, this is one of the major problems right now. We've gone so far from that, that we're kind of winding up in a situation where like, well, is, is civilization going to collapse because what we've done to the money? Bitcoin flips it on its head and gives us a new, you know, something that we've never even been able to con- contend with or consider before which is that global unsiloed real-time market for, for capital and money that I just described. And like the efficiency of, ca- I mean, I know I keep saying it, but the efficiency of capital that you will get from that to perfectly match time preferences of lenders and borrowers in conjunction with the, the capital available. Like, I this mean, is, it's staggering. It's, it's staggering. It's t- I don't, <laughs> well, it, it becomes fair. So when you look at the situation today, so much friction exists through currency mm. exchange. I mean, just massive. Oh, it, a ton. It, it, it'd be like, you know, the, the ATP in your liver cannot be the same ATP that would work in your heart. Um, <laughs> like you'd have to exchange to some other type of energy uh, molecule and like the work that would have to be performed. And so that's how I look at like the world today is like you got all these different organs all over the, over the planet that are countries and in order for them to exchange with each other, they have to, you know, they have to do this massive feat of friction in order to to conduct that exchange. In the future, that just goes away. It's frictionless uh, for that energy exchange between nation states, which is going to be just an incredible thing. 
Um, and immediate, which is the other friction. You, you've got the cost yeah. friction and then you've got the time friction, you know, and yeah. they're both gone. What, one other thing that I think is, is uh, a big difference for people to comprehend about lending today versus on the other side of this. So uh, today, like if you're going to lend your Bitcoin, there's enormous risk. And the reason that there's enormous risk is because of the price appreciation that's yet to occur. The, the mm. buy, let me rephrase that, the buying power that's yet to occur for those, those Bitcoin. Um, and so like when, when you're asking like, well, what rate of return should you get for the risk of rehypothecation? You know, maybe there isn't a high enough interest rate to receive, even if it was double digits because mm -hmm. of the risk that, that like of that price or that buying power appreciation that's yet to come. When you get on the other side of this, that's not there anymore. It's not there at all. Like today, um, a lot of that's protected through this idea of over collateralization. So if you're going to go take out a loan, you have to uh, make a deposit of something that's actually more valuable than the loan that you're that you're taking out. And if, if your mm. collateral drops by, uh, you know, it starts getting close to the same value of what you borrowed, then they liquidate the collateral and they convert it into whatever whatever they want in order to protect whatever counterparty risk they've got. In the future, on the other side of this, over-collateralization isn't going to be something that's required. And the reason it won't be required is because after this big event, if you go out to the store, maybe a, maybe a, a candy bar costs 10 sats. If, you, if it took another five years later and you went out to go buy the same candy bar, it's still going to cost 10 sats. You go another five or 10 years later, it's going to be nine sats or 10 sats, right? Like the, 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 va the value of those units are going to be retained. And since they're going to be retained, my concern of, of getting back what I lend out is a far different mathematical equation than it is today. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I think very few think about. And so yeah. that would, that would go, you know, how I was saying, you know, I don't know which way it's going to go as far as people's willingness to lend out. I would say that because of that fact, they're probably going to be way more willing to lend their Bitcoin out because the risk of, uh, of the appreciation of the Bitcoin during that, that term of the, of the contract of the lending contract, it's not appreciating in value like it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, you know, the candy bar example makes me also think about how, I mean, it, when, when you really get stuck in the weeds of, of just how much manipulating the cost of capital and the money supply and control of the money, how much that, I mean, that basically generates the world, right? Things get built that shouldn't be built. Companies stay around that shouldn't be around. Services degrade because they're being backstopped by the government. Like there's all sorts of all of this behavior leads into the world that we experience on a daily basis, right? And people wonder why people are so upset about how things are. It's like, well, this is the result of those manipulations. And even something as simple of, as a candy bar, and you know, the point you were making is right, like the, the, the currency unit's not gonna be de devalued. So what will end up happening is over time, you know, let's say post hyper-Bitcoinization, the deflation, that will occur will roughly, at least in my mind, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, will roughly reflect productivity growth in the, let's say, global economy on an annual basis. 
right? Because the increase in the value of goods and services will have to be accounted for in a inelastic supply of money. And so the money, the, the price of the money will have to accommodate the new goods and services. And what we will see as a result of that is the efficiency gains in the production of those goods, right? So the efficiency gains in the making of the candy bar, the sourcing of the cocoa and the sugar and all the other stuff uh, will be represented in the price finally, right? Because that's been basically robbed from the world for the last 50 years and intermittently, you know, throughout time before that, because the inflation of the money is basically a way to siphon off those productivity gains and direct them to a certain cohort of people and deprive them and deprive another cohort of people from them. You know, so we will actually, that human ingenuity, those productivity gains, those breakthroughs, all that stuff that makes production and services and businesses better throughout the course of time and building on the innovations that came before, we will actually get to experience them in a widespread manner that basically we won't be, we won't be denied them. And it's so hopeful to think of what kind of a world will result when that happens in conjunction with bad businesses being allowed to fail, bad management being allowed to, you know, be fired and fail. Like we, I think we will see, man, just a far fairer, more abundant, uh, world. And, you know, I guess that's why we're here in large part. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, my only counterpoint <laughs> or, or disagreement <laughs> with it would just but, be, and this, and this is me really pulling the thread, right? Is yeah, sure. Let's sure. let's warp ourselves. Okay, so <laughs> we're really getting, uh, you know, in a in a fiction novel here. Um, let's do it. So you go hyper Bitcoinization. You're now on a SAT standard, um, and then you warp yourself fifty years into the future. Mm-hmm. How deflationary is Bitcoin at that point? Because if it's very deflationary or it's, or it's starting to almost be as deflationary as our inflationary situations are right now, like let's say you're double digits deflationary, um, what does that mean to the incentive structure of the world? I think you see the exact opposite incentive structure that you see right now. The incentive structure right now is to just, uh, the dial is turned up to turbo, like it's at a hundred, you got the turbo boost on of productivity. Right. I think mm-hmm. you'd see the exact opposite of that in the, in that double digit deflationary scenario where everybody's just vegged out and they're not doing crap right. because the, the, the units that they're holding just keep going up and buying power and people really don't have an incentive to just work their tails off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's yeah. really get Like I said, we're in a, we're in a fiction well, no, novel no, that's, at this point. No, no, but that's, I think that's totally legit. I mean, that's that that's going to be a scenario that we at least have to contend with. So, you know, and, and so right now we're revving the engines, bringing all that consumption forward, build, you know, produce, 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 consume, 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 right? Whatever your feelings are about that, fine. Um, I would say, you know, to the scenario you just painted about in the future, I think the first aspect is people are still going to need things. And people are still going to deploy their capital in accord with their hierarchy of values and their hierarchy of needs. And what it may mean is that there's, you know, less junk produced and things that are of that are higher up on the value hierarchy will be preferentially produced. And maybe that won't be such a bad thing. Maybe that will mean that, you know, we have higher quality goods and in our life and Maybe maybe that'll be a, a good situation. But I think that the, the final point totally, there. I totally agree with what you just said. Mm-hmm. Except for like way out on the timeline. I, I don't, I I don't think, know. I don't want to comment on that because I, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. 
I think the finer point is this, that, and I'd like to get your feedback because I feel like people often miss it, but for that deflation to happen, let's say it's, you know, 15%, it implies that production has caused that deflation, right? Because as I said before- if, Oh no, if, I don't see it that way at all. I see it as, okay. as just, like, like, just like what we're seeing today. The inflation that you're seeing is because of the units that are being added into the system. By, mm-hmm. central, by central bankers that are, com- that are controlling the units, right? That, that is incentivizing the production to just go like off the charts for everybody to be working, you know, two jobs and, you know, the yeah, kids yeah, are in yeah. childcare, everybody's working, right? Like that, that is a total function of the monetary policies that have been in place yeah. for decades. If you, if you have the exact opposite thing happening, where the units are being destroyed, or not in this case, they're not being destroyed, they're being lost at a pace that, oh, okay. that now what happens to the incentive structure? Well, if the incentive structure before, if, if what I'm describing is true, that the incentive structure was to you know, hit the afterburners with productivity, the only thing I can conclude is that you'd have the exact opposite happen. Mm-hmm. And that you'd be incentivizing people to veg out at their houses and not work and not produce. But John, we're talking about something that's like, it could be a hundred years from now. I don't know. Yeah, no, but I, and I that's think it's great. And that's assuming I Bitcoinization happens second. and everything else, right? Like, I don't, sure, I don't sure. know, dude, like we're getting, <laughs> we're getting way out there in, in la la land. No, no, this, this is, this is good. So, so you're basically, you're implying that the deflation in this whenever scenario, 50, hundred years off is from lost coins. Is that the premise? Yeah. Yeah. I don't see how it could be anything other than that. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe we get better at custody. I mean, the 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 supply of coins is only gonna shrink presumably into the future, right? Because the supply, the new supply, but that becomes an so exponential. Tiny. That that will it'll it'll be optically viewed as a linear thing until it's yeah. not, and then it'll it'll it will become exponential, just like we're seeing the printing right now. It used to look very linear. But the further that you go in the, in the doubling and then the quadrupling and then the, and the, it goes to Jeff Booth's folding of the piece of paper. If you fold the piece of paper 50 times, how thick is it? Well, you're, you're at, at a distance at from moon. earth to the, to the sun, right? In distance. Right. And so the same rule applies in the opposite direction for deflation it's just a matter of like, well, how long would that take to play out? And like, what would that, uh, I don't know, man, this, this is, no, no, I, I don't I, think I, it's I like con- this. This is interesting, <laughs> but I, what, what would make lost coins exponential? Like what would cause that to be an okay, exponential well, process? Okay. Well, let's say, uh, you have a, a billionaire and they, uh, they had, they were self custody and then I say billionaire, <laughs> Uh, you have somebody who has a, an enormous amount of buying power and they just did a poor job of, of the handoff of, of the custody of it. They're gone. They're uh-huh. gone forever. Um, there's, there's way bigger risks than pulling on this thread, right? Because you don't know what, from a processing standpoint, the quantum computing piece, like right. you get 50 years out in the future. I think that I'm a person who hates to overprocess things that, that really aren't going to have any tangible impact in my life yeah. or somebody else's, right? So I see a lot of this conversation as maybe being fun, but totally over-processed mm-hmm. and just not something to really spend well, a lot of your time on. 
Well, fair enough. But this, this is what we were talking about earlier, right? Like this is what we do in this space. We're like, hey, that's a new idea or a new thought. Let's take it to its logical conclusion. Yeah, sure. But, um, you know, I think my, my, my perspective on that is not necessarily to use Bitcoin as a mirror to being the antithesis to everything that exists today, but rather being the instantiation of like kind of a natural process or a natural law. And I think amongst other things, whether we're talking about the cost and allocation of capital or the construction of societies and cultures and civilizations, I think, you know, broadly, very broadly speaking, zooming out a lot, it's simply a mechanism that will allow for the for natural equilibrium to be found in human exchange in the, you know, in, yeah, the, the construction of society and culture, at least that's my hope. Right. And, um, whether the, there's, you know, maybe we're all working off of a hundred million Satoshis in 200 years time. I still think because of the mechanics of it all, we'll see natural processes coalesce as optimally as they can around that absolute as they often do in, in other domains, biological or otherwise. Yeah, I'd agree with you. <laughs> Sorry, I don't um, have any, any, any brilliant comment to say. <laughs> I just agree with you. Yeah, well, I'll take it. When Preston agrees with me, I'm, I'm a happy man. <laughs> um, Preston, what do you, we're winding, you know, coming close to the end here now, but what do you make of, because we've been talking about transition, what's going on, how Bitcoin's going to impact things. You know, for various reasons, we're at a very unique place right now uh, with inflation and monetary policy and fiscal policy and supply chain disruption and all this kind of stuff. What, how are you feeling about all of this right now? Yes, hodling Bitcoin and continuing to accumulate, I presume that's part of the plan, but are there any other thoughts that are running through your mind about how to maneuver the current circumstance? No, I think right now it's pretty straightforward and it's, uh, you know, keep accumulating as much Bitcoin as you can. Uh, make sure that, that you have a plan for uh, self-custody. I think that's really important because my, my real big concern with this is you have two universes colliding. And if you've ever watched a video of like what that simulation looks like, um, it's a nasty thing. And so uh, you have traditional finance with nothing percent interest rates. You have this, you have this digital asset economy uh, being constructed almost like a city right next to it. And they are going to collide. And when they do, it's going to be some fireworks that people just can't possibly imagine what that looks like. And, and, where I think you're going to find the biggest disruption is in the lending area, because I think this lending stuff is going to get very popular. You're going to be able to buy Bitcoin. You're going to be able to put it on an exchange. You're going to be able to get like real interest rates, like interest rates that are going to blow your hair back. And it's just going to accelerate the, uh, the desire to borrow in the traditional system and allocate in the new, in the new system. You're going to get to a point where there's going to be a lot of competition amongst exchanges and people that are providing these borrowing and lending services. Lots of competition. And with competition comes cutting of corners because, they're, because the name of the game is you want to try to get as many clients on your platform as fast as possible. Look at uh, FTX is a great example. 
They've got Tom Brady, their name in stadiums. They're like doing everything they can. They're paying higher interest rates than everybody else. Um, just so they can try to get as many people in the door as possible because they want to achieve a network effect. Well, mm-hmm. if you're a smaller, you know, lending, borrowing, lending house in, in this digital asset space, um, you have to try to compete. And well, you have to go out on a razor's edge to do that. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, they want to attract institutional borrowers and lenders into their platform. And if you think they're going to, they're going to make them over collateralize, you're kidding yourself. And we're already seeing that today. These institutional, these institutions that are participating in this space, they're not doing an LTV of 50% or 70%. They're under collateralized. Now, how much? I don't know, but they're not, they're not over collateralized. So mm. why is that a concern? Well, it's a concern because they have other assets on their balance sheets, these institutions. They might own equity. They might own whatever. And if the market starts to realize that interest rates are, you know, I can get 10% over here because of this contango and they're, they're basically harvesting that and then paying it out to their customers. It doesn't take long for people to start, everybody wanting to start being in that space. And when they do, what happens to equity prices? Your equity prices are not priced at 2% or 3% returns or, or market prices and market capitalization rates. They start getting priced at PEs of 10. Actually, they, they would be PEs uh, slightly high. Uh, what would it be? Uh, slightly lower than that, right? And when that happens, you're going to have a 70, 80% correction in equities. Well, if you're that institutional company that's under collateralized, but also have all these other assets on your balance sheet, and they just got marked to market by 70, 80%. All of a sudden, what, what these borrowing and lending digital asset platforms thought was a low risk partner, all of a sudden became an enormous threat to their entire business structure because they're not going to be able to pay it back because they have so much counterparty risk in a market that they aren't even participating in, right? but is getting recapitalized in Bitcoin terms because of interest rates. Okay. Mm. So the reason I bring all this up and the reason why I think this is really, really important for people to understand is because if you start seeing things melting down in Bitcoin terms, equity valuations, and you start seeing those, those uh, capitalization rates start to invert themselves, they're not at 30, they're at 15 or whatever, um, you better get your stuff off the exchange and you better take self-custody of it because that's the time that you got to button down the hatch because the tornado's coming into the town or the hurricane's coming into the town and you have no idea who's going to get wrecked. And let me tell you, there's going to be people that get wrecked and it might be the platform you're using. It might be the, your, your buddy's platform that they're using, but I can tell you one thing. I'm going to be nowhere in sight of any of those <laughs> platforms. My coins will be self-custody. I will be running a full node and I will be validating every single transaction and I will make sure that these people are playing by the rules just like the other 30,000 full nodes out there that at least are publicly uh, proclaiming that they're full nodes. Uh, they're going to be doing the exact same thing. And so you need to know how to self-custody your coins. Uh, and have a blast, man. Because boy, I'll tell you, you are at a moment in time that is a once in a millennia opportunity 
if you actually harvest it and you actually just take the bull by the horns and ride the hell out of that thing. Boy, oh boy, what an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's something I try to stress to people in my life that this isn't your run of the mill, you know, hot internet company in the late 90s, early 2010s, whatever. This is a a one-time thing, you know, and there will be opportunities in the future. But if if we're correct about this being the future base layer monetary system value transfer protocol for humanity, then staking your territory now is pretty much the most important thing that you could be doing, at least financially speaking. And uh, yeah, acting on that post haste will probably serve you very well in the future. So don't overthink um, it. Don't overthink it. You can just, (laughs) you don't have to do anything spectacular to literally rip the ball out of the ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, Preston, I'm sure we could, we could speak for a lot longer and hopefully we'll get another chance to connect uh, again soon, but I appreciate the time. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You're such, um, you know, you're so articulate and you're so knowledgeable about all this stuff and you frame it in ways that are easy to understand for even, you know, people that aren't so familiar with all this. So I love what you're doing. I appreciate it. And uh, where can people learn more about uh, all your work? Thanks so much, John. Uh, what an, what a pleasure coming on your show. I love talking with you. Uh, I have a podcast. It's, it's called We Study Billionaires. My show is Bitcoin specific. It comes out on Wednesday. I'm really active on Twitter, uh, just at Preston Pish. Uh, my last name is spelled P-Y-S-H. Um, and yeah, I just love to engage and interact with you on Twitter. It's a yeah, blast. It's, uh, it's real fun to be part of this journey with, journey with you, man. And uh, hopefully... We'll be hanging out again at uh, the Bitcoin conference in uh, in Miami in April. Uh, I'm going, if all man. things go go according to plan, so uh, I'm sure it's going to be even a, a bigger, wilder time than than last one. So, uh, Preston, thanks so much again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Preston as much as I did. As you may have been able to tell, we're both quite excited by the possibilities we see in Bitcoin. If you'd like to hear more from Preston, check out his podcast at theinvestorspodcast.com and follow him on Twitter at Preston Pish, P-R-E-S-T-O-N-P-Y-S-H. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.